BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, the uh, Buffalo terrorists didn't shoot alone. That's my op-ed today at HartmanReport.com. We'll get to that in a moment. Also, what is the end point for Republican terrorism? We'll get into that. Professor Richard Wolf, the economics professor, is going to drop by. He's got an interesting little tweet thread about inflation leading directly to authoritarianism. It's certainly what happened in Germany in the 30s. We will discuss that. Also, Ben Jealous is going to drop by. The Buffalo shooting should make the GOP change its great replacement theory rhetoric. We'll discuss, is that going to happen? Where did this come from? Where is this going? How do we get out of this mess? So an awful lot to talk about today, a lot to cover. My op-ed at HartmanReport.com is titled, The Buffalo Terrorist Didn't Shoot Alone. And I think, you know, at some level, this is fairly obvious. But at another level, I think if you if we put it in the right frame, possibly some solutions become available to us. Um, when he, when, when, first of all, we need to be calling him a terrorist, right? This guy tried to, he, he tried to inflict maximum terror. He writes in his manifesto that he specifically chose a supermarket because he wanted black people to feel that they could be killed anywhere. So he wanted to try a new place where everybody goes. That's terrorism. And why this guy isn't being called a terrorist, why that, why that word is not the discovery, why they call him the shooter, I don't get. Well, I do get. He was a white guy. I, you know, I totally get it. But anyway, the weapons, he, he, didn't, he didn't act alone. The weapons industry in the United States stood right beside him. They made sure he had easy and legal access to highly profitable weapons of war that are banned or tightly regulated in every other developed democracy in the world. The Republican Party stood right beside him, taking money from that industry in exchange for blocking legislation. The majority of Americans support that would regulate guns in America. Republican appointees on the Supreme Court stood right beside him, taking gifts, junkets, and speaking fees from groups associated with that weapons industry that got them on the court and lobbied their votes in the corrupt Heller decision. America's media stands right beside him, normalizing the terrorism of mass shootings by never using the word terrorist to describe white people like him and never ever talking about, for example, what happened in Australia after the, after the murders in, uh, I think it was 1996, as I recall, um, in Australia that led that country to just say, okay, enough. 
We've talked about that in the program before. I won't revisit it right now. But also, who stood behind the shooter? The billionaires who fund the Republican Party stood right beside him, watching without a word as the same politicians that they'd initially corrupted with their dark money contributions to keep taxes and regulation low prostituted themselves to the gun industry. When the uh, Buffalo terrorist murdered 10 people to stop the replacement of white people, he didn't act alone. The white supremacy industry, yes, it's an industry in America with a healthy fundraising and publishing arm, stood right beside him, providing him with talking points and uh, twisted history to justify his rage. Ron DeSantis and Greg Abbott and other Republican governors around the country stood right beside him, pushing through laws to prevent the next generation of potential white terrorists he hoped to influence with his manifesto from learning the true racial history of America in our public schools. Fox News and their crew of hosts, producers, executives, and the Murdoch family stood right beside him, amplifying white people's fear that if they end up the mi minority in this country, they may be treated the same way that white people treated minorities for centuries. Social media companies stood right beside him, spoon-feeding him rage, fear, and hate, because those emotions are the things that tickle their algorithms and, and basically increase profits for these social media companies. The massive monopolistic corporations that fund the Republican Party stood right beside him, continuing to shovel money to replacement theory politicians like Elise Stefanik and Matt Gates. The Republican Party itself stood right beside him, having quietly invited white supremacists into their ranks in the 1970s with Nixon's Southern strategy. They doubled down on it in 1980 when Reagan's first official speech as a candidate for president of the United States was at the, at the Nebosha or Neshoba, however you say it, county uh, fair in, in, uh, near Philadelphia, Mississippi, where three civil rights workers, uh, Cheney, Cheney, Goodman, and Schwermer, were murdered. And the, the Republican approval of racism as an overt political strategy when they refused to ostracize Trump for his primary announcement that it was Mexicans who are rapists and murderers coming to this country. And in the end, and I think this is the toughest one for, for uh, those of you who are white who are listening to this program, I think white people all stand beside the Buffalo terrorist if those of us with that white privilege don't use it to push back with everything we have to rid America of the scourge of racism and the power of the big money and death-dealing industries that support it. This guy did not act alone, and I think that we need to be very, very, very clear about that. And also, what is the end point for Republican terrorism? And this party, the Democratic Party, is going back to its FDR roots right now, and it's a good thing. But on the Republican side, we're seeing an aggressive move toward fascism being promoted both by the Republican base and by its right-wing billionaire donors. And, you know, I think the most vis visible example of this is the Republican Party's inability or unwillingness to call out the white supremacy and the, and the replacement theory advocates within their own, you know, within the party itself. Liz Cheney tweeted, the House GOP leadership has enabled white nationalism, white supremacy, and anti-Semitism. History has taught us that what begins with words ends in far worse. GOP leaders must renounce and reject these views and those who hold them. And she's being attacked for saying that by Republicans. At the same time, 
last year, 2021, 93 percent of all politically motivated murders in the United States were done by people affiliated with right wing extremism, 3 percent by Islamic extremism, 6 percent by left wing extremism, specifically anarchists and black nationalists. Um, and I'm not even sure I'd call that left wing. Well, maybe extremism. But in any case, 91 percent of all the murders, politically motivated murders in the United States last year were committed by people affiliated with the right wing extremism over the past 10 years. According to the uh, Anti-Defamation League, quote, of the 443 people killed at the hands of extremists over the 10-year period, 75% were killed by right-wing extremists. So how does this happen? I mean, we've got this whole replacement theory going, Tucker Carlson promoting it, Fox News promoting it, all that sort of thing. But there's really, there are really three things that are absolutely necessary for terrorism to grow in a nation. And we are seeing them right now in the United States. But let's, let's identify these. Number one, there must be an ideology. And at the core of that ideology, a mythology of victimhood that provides the rationale for using terror as a political weapon. In the United States right now, that's the so-called great replacement theory. Second, to make terrorism work, there has to be an evangelist community. Now, I'm not talking about evangelicals, I'm, although many of them fit this bill, but an evangelist community, that is to say people who support and recruit new terrorists. There has to be a supportive community for these wannabe terrorists. And they're finding that right now on Fox News. They're finding it on Facebook. They're finding it on multiple well-known websites and gamer sites now. And those must be held accountable if we're going to do something about this, whether it be in the courts or whether it be in Congress or most importantly, frankly, in the court of public opinion. They need to be you know, held up, identified, and publicly shamed. The third key to a successful terrorist program is to trigger individual terrorists without your fingerprints being all over it, without specifically you know, tying responsibility back to the movement. You're seeing this right now in the GOP, trying to pretend that the, the, this most recent terrorist killing had nothing to do with them. The law enforcement name for this is stochastic terrorism. Stochastic is, is a word that means random. But in the, in the context of terrorism, as Dictionary.com notes, quote, stochastic terrorism is the public demonization of a person or group resulting in the incitement of a violent act, which is statistically probable, but whose specifics cannot be predicted. Great example, Bill O'Reilly calling Dr. George Tiller, Dr. Tiller the baby killer, I believe it was over 30 times on Fox News or in the neighborhood of 30 times. And sure enough, some lone wolf terrorist goes out and shoots Dr. Tiller. Well, he wasn't a lone wolf. He had a whole support group behind him. The Buffalo terrorist, the same deal. The, and these killers come to believe that their, their understanding of reality is widely shared when high-profile individuals like Tucker Carlson on, on Fox or Matt Gate tweeting, Tucker Carlson is correct about replacement theory. When those you know, high-profile individuals support the terrorist position, then the terrorists assume that there's a much larger uh, you know, audience out there, there's a much larger support group for them, and then they begin going ahead and engaging in terrorism. We need to break all three of these pieces of the support network and the systems in place right now that support right-wing terrorism in America. If we don't, we're in deep trouble. If we do and restore democracy to the United States, we may again become that shining city on the hill that the rest of the world looks to.
Malcolm in Bluebell, Pennsylvania. Hey, Malcolm, what's up? Hey, Tom. Unfortunately, with the money in politics, it's almost as if we just have to get used to it. With Las Vegas, that shooter, he wounded 411 people and killed 60, and all we got was thoughts and prayers, tweets from Mike Pence and even Trump. Yeah, you're right. And then um, in terms of the grocery store, people have a short memory in Walmart with the shooter in El Paso. He 23 and wounded another 23, and that's a Walmart superstore. So it's, yep. I'm driving through Connecticut now. I'm not far from Sandy Hook. And with that one, what comes to mind is Alex Jones filing for bankruptcy to avoid even being held accountable for going after the families of it. So, so you're not an optimist. You're not optimistic that A, the shootings are going to stop and B, the racism is going to stop. We have too many guns in circulation. Yeah, and the fact that you have politicians like Marjorie Taylor Greene making fun of Parkland kids who survived that mass shooting, yeah. along with the NRA funding these same politicians, and all we're getting is thoughts and prayers. Like there's too many examples of places that were not safe at but all we get is tweets yeah no i'm I'm, I'm, I'm with you because they live behind walls yeah so with security in most cases much like their kids with covid they yeah. can tell you not to get back but they're vaccinated and their kids are homeschooled with the best shooter money can buy most likely from yeah. all of these politicians yeah no i i, I get followers, it unfortunately I, 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 believe something else yeah i completely get it thank you margie in wisconsin rapids wisconsin hey margie what's on your mind today the terrorist in Buffalo. Yes. We need to start taking a look at this at an, another way. Republicans are always accusing Democrats of being groomers. Well, we all know that Republicans project what they're doing. And one of the things that they're doing is grooming terrorists. Yep. At 18 years old, the person was 11 years old when Donald Trump announced his candidacy and called Mexican rapists and murderers. They were 13 when he called the Charlottesville terrorists very fine people. They witnessed their government putting people, brown people, coming across the border in concentration camps and putting children in cages. They also have witnessed the increase of Republicans espousing extreme violence and passing that to their children. Let's think of, I believe it was Massey that sent out a Christmas card with all of the kids holding assault Weapons. Yeah, it was Thomas Massey, the Republican from Kentucky. Yeah. So combine the increased racist rhetoric of the Republicans with the increased violent rhetoric of the Republicans. This is what's formed 18-year-olds, how they have been formed through their entire adolescence yeah that's they brilliant see this as normal you're right this is how donald trump has so reshaped america and it's obviously it's not just him i mean you know fox news has had a big role in this and all these other 
you know, all the, the rest of the right, uh, right-wing uh, media. But yeah, Margie, that is absolutely brilliant. I couldn't have written it or said it better. Thank you so much for that. Quoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. You know, when we talk about economics, we often talk about it in a vacuum, essentially. You know, what's inflation going to do? What's the market going to do? How is this going to affect paychecks? And occasionally, we'll get into a political dimension of it. You know, how, how is the price of gas going to affect Joe Biden's re-election chances, that kind of stuff. But very rarely do we put it in the context of really large societal, uh, national changes. But in fact, uh, economics does swing countries. Uh, probably the most famous example is the German inflation of the 19, uh, late 1920s, early 1930s. Um, uh, Professor Richard Wolff has been tweeting about this, and I, I found it absolutely fascinating. I wanted to ask him to give us a little more of a deep dive into all this. He's the economist, co-founder of democracyatwork.info, the author of numerous books. His most recent is The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Uh, R.D. Wolf with two Fs dot com. Also another one of his websites and Prof. Wolf on Twitter uh, with two Fs. Professor Wolf, welcome back. So how does, uh, you know, specifically, I suppose, inflation lead to fascism and how in a larger sense do economics swing the cycles of world history throughout history? Well, they do it over and over again. It ought to be a, a basic understanding of the enormous importance and power of economics in general and economic turmoil uh, in particular. Let me very briefly go with you through the German experience and show you how impactful it is in terms of where we are now here uh, in the United States in 2022. The German economy exploded in the second half of the 20th century. Together with the United States, Germany and the United States were the great challengers to the British Empire. As the uh, century progressed, it became clear that one or the other would replace Britain as the dominant capitalist power in the world, and the British were powerless to stop it. In the end, the Germans and the British went to war, and the Americans went with the British in that war, World War I. But it came as a cataclysm to the Germans because the working class there had wages go up, had itself become wealthy relative to anything the rest of Europe could understand, etc., etc. And they thought they were in the catbird seat. When they lost World War I, it was a devastating 
blow to them. But they might have worked their way through it. That war, if you remember, ended in 1918. Then in 1923, four or five years later, they had one of the worst inflations in the world. German marks went from four or five to a dollar to five billion to a dollar. I mean, prices were doubling literally every couple of hours over months at a time. You had no way to save anything. The frugal German family that had saved money for generations suddenly discovered that all those savings would barely buy you a quarter pound of butter. And then four or five years later, 1929, they were hit with the Great Depression that hit all capitalist countries. But for the working class of Germany, it was too much. In the space of a decade, they lost the World War, they went through one of the worst inflations in history, and then they were devastated by the Great Depression. There is no coincidence that literally two years after the Great Depression hits, begins the real rise to power of Adolf Hitler. The German working class needed somebody, anybody, to prevent their complete decimation. And now here we are in the United States. And let me show you the parallel. We just had a, one of the worst public health disasters in our history. We had the second worst crash of the capitalist system in our history. We have lost the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, and then we have an inflation, and now we are expecting a, a, a recession. It's too much to impose on a working class. People become very depressed, very desperate, and in that situation in Germany, they went in a fascist direction. And we see the signs of it here. Nobody can tell the future, I can't either. But we ought to be awfully careful about what we are visiting on the mass of the American working people, Democrat and Republican alike, because when the backlash comes, and we're already halfway there, it is not going to be anything we would want to even imagine. I remember reading a history of that, uh, you know, post-World War I period, and uh, John Maynard Keynes came out and said that if the Treaty of Versailles that was being negotiated by the Allied powers who had defeated Germany, um, which was demanding massive reparations from Germany and demanding that they be paid in Deutschmarks, if those reparations were to uh, remain in that treaty, that it would produce World War II. He said it, it, World War II will become inevitable. He was, mm, I don't want to say laughed at, but ignored, shall we say largely. And, uh, you know, I think it was really, it was very much the case, was it not? I mean, it wasn't much of the German inflation an effort to, since they, they owed billions or trillions to the rest of Europe in Deutschmarks to, to pay it off with depreciated Deutschmarks? Absolutely. But let me take your, your parallel, the further step that will help people see its relevance. Absolutely. They did impose the reparations. The reparations made Germany's recovery from the war take much longer, uh, make the suffering of the Germans uh, stretch it out further. But more than any real effect, and it had real effects, was the fact that it allowed a demagogue, Hitler, to make an argument which wasn't correct, namely what really problematized Germany was the loss of the war and the inflation and the whole structure of their economy and the global depression. But he got rid of all of that and gave them one focus. 
It's the West. It's Britain, the United States, in cahoots with Russia. He hooked it up that way. And it was the evil others outside of Germany that had to be defeated. He was the only politician determined to rearm Germany to make it possible. The demagogue comes in to the distraught working class, gives them a scapegoat, gives them a way forward, and then watches as the suffering they they went through turns them to somebody, and he's the somebody in that moment. The parallel with our own situation ought to occur to everyone. Well, and I think that parallel uh, is probably best illustrated in the 1916, excuse me, in the 2016 uh, primary debates, uh, where you had uh, Bernie Sanders taking the populist position that, yeah, the economy sucks in many regards, and it does so because a bunch of billionaires have gamed the system and, and the Supreme Court has corruptly allowed them into politics, and we need to go back to a, a reasonable political system and a taxation system. On the left, you had Bernie Sanders saying that. And then on the right, you had Donald Trump saying, yes, the, game, the system is gamed and, and you've been screwed, um, but it's because brown people are coming in from Mexico and because uh, political elites have cut, uh, you know, trade deals like NAFTA and things like that, which had some truth to it, by the way. Um, you know, not the brown people part, but the, the NAFTA part. And so you had kind of dueling populism, right-left populism, offering solutions to this crisis that America was facing after you know both the crash of 2000 and the crash of 2008 and uh it seems like the middle has collapsed in all this because the middle has been corrupted by uh, largely supreme court decisions and and capitalism itself frankly um so uh, wouldn't you know was I, i'm assuming that there was a parallel movement in germany opposed to hitler or maybe it was part of hitler's movement to say, you know, we need to empower the average working person. I know in 1937, when he was on the cover of Time magazine, he was the most popular politician in the world because he had put Germany back together. Absolutely. The, paral the parallels, once you look at it this way and you ask the question, they kind of come at you one after another. In Germany, there was an opposition. There was an extremely strong socialist party. And by 1931 and two, right next to it, an extremely strong communist party. Together, they were picking up roughly half of the votes in the national elections right up until the moment that Hitler comes to power. Their problem was the socialists had been in power for the previous decade or much of it, the 1920s. And since that hadn't solved the problems of the working class, it put them on a defensive position, allowing uh, Mr. Hitler to come in and do his thing. It's almost as though you could criticize the socialists and communists, particularly the socialists, because the communists never got into the government the way the socialists did in Germany then. But you could criticize them for not doing enough to really change the situation of the mass of people. Had they done so, it would have been a much stronger defense against Hitler coming in. But they were complicit kind of in the way that a significant part of the Democratic Party has been, leaving a, a rump portion, Bernie, AOC, and the rest, having to push more weight than they can handle, given the history that arrives at this point. But it is a very frightening uh, impact that this remembrance of our history ought to deliver.
Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm completely with you. Professor Richard Wolf, a fascinating glimpse into e- economics and history. Democracyatwork.info, rdwolf.com, Prof Wolf on Twitter. Uh, his book, The Sickness is the System. Professor Wolf, thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. Great talking with you. We're reading today from the history of World War II, Armed Services Memorial Edition. It's written by Francis Trevelyan Miller and the U.S. military with the Board of Historical and Military Authorities by Universal Book and Bible House in 1945. And this is from the chapter, The Phenomenon of Hitler. It starts out, his father was Alois Schickelgruber, the illegitimate child of a peasant girl who bore his mother's name until he was 40. Alois started out as a shoemaker's apprentice. Conscripted into the army, he rose to the rank of sergeant. That was so much above a mere cobbler, he stayed with the army for 15 years. After his discharge, he received a so-called certificate appointment that made him a minor customs official with the Imperial Civil Service. He had worked up to what seemed to him high above the scorned class of common people, the peasants, and the poor little working men. That trait had its influence on his son, Adolf. Alois Schickelgruber married three times. His first wife, 14 years older than he, divorced him. While his first marriage was still valid, another girl, Franziska Matzelsberger, bore him a son, Alois. Schickelgruber married her after his divorced wife died. Two months after their marriage, she bore him a daughter, Angela. One year later, his second wife died. Ten months thereafter, he married Clara Poltzel, who was his junior by 23 years. He was 47 then and had, in the meantime, changed his name to obtain a legacy to Hitler. From his third marriage sprang five children, of whom three died in infancy. The two surviving were Adolf and Paula. Adolf Hitler's half-brother, Alois, ran away from home, complaining about cruel treatment by his father. He worked as a waiter in England, married an Irish girl, treated her cruelly, and begot a son, William Patrick Hitler. After Adolf came to power, Alois returned to Germany, leaving wife and son behind and became a prosperous innkeeper. Adolf's half-sister, Angela, also followed him to Germany from Austria to care for his households in Munich and Berchtesgaden. She was the mother of unhappy Krit Agel Rubal, the girl who is said to have committed suicide after becoming enamored of her uncle Adolf. His sister, Paula, considered a queer person, lived a troublesome life in Vienna, and became an ardent Nazi. William Patrick Hitler broke away from the Hitler clan and came with his mother to the United States to fight against the world's scourge of Nazism. This young man, imbued with the spirit of freedom inherited from his liberty-loving Irish mother, joined the United States Navy. The historians of this volume held confidential talks with Hitler's nephew, some of which can be related here. He placed before us official documents, which threw light on the background of Adolf Hitler. He told us about the years when he lived with his uncle at Berchtesgaden, the conduct and habits of the Fuhrer, how in his mountain retreat, the most strongly fortified in the world, Hitler planned and plotted world conquest. The nephew related to us the secrets of the mysterious Rudolf Hest and the Ernst Putzi Hofstengegel, who fled to England, the latter being held prisoner in Canada and later coming to the United States. Letters were submitted to document the facts. These are books in themselves, which undoubtedly will be revealed in future years. It is sufficient to state here that young Patrick Hitler fled from Berchtesgaden when he became convinced that his uncle, Adolf, was suffering from delusions of grandeur and a messianic complex which endangered his own nephew's life as well as Germany and the whole world. Having disposed of a thousand of his intimates, Adolf Hitler's own family was not safe from attack. He would break into his nephew's room in the midnight hours to rant about how he would conquer the world. 
As a child, he was as difficult as Alois, his father. Father Alois was a tyrannical egoist with a mania for cruelty. Young Adolf liked to rage in rabid oratories, audience or no audience. His father called him daffy and lazy. He wanted his son to become an important personage like himself. But 11-year-old Adolf revolted against going to school and exposing himself to the heavy task of book learning. He hated his teachers. He hated his schoolmates. Faced by the odious realities of life as they were fearfully represented to him by a father with a big stick and an inclination for alcohol, Adolf wanted only to escape. He was 13 at the time of his father's death and 19 when his mother died. Of the six years between those two events, little is known about the boy's doings, except that he prevailed upon his mother to take him out of the hated secondary school, and that she encouraged him in his hobby of making drawings until his ego became inflated to the point that he believed himself a genius. He lived on his mother's pension until her death. With his mother and her income gone, the escapist days were over. He had to face life. A misfit, uneducated, arrogant, undeveloped in mind, stubborn and quarrelsome, without any moral concepts. Such was young Adolf Hitler when he entered Vienna in the beginning of 1909. Here his ego was deflated for the first time. He could not even pass his entrance exams to the Academy of Arts. His drawings were considered crude imitations, counterfeits. When a jury at the Academy of Munich refused a painting he submitted for exhibition, he stormed back to inquire who composed the jury. He learned that among them was a Jew who ranked as one of the outstanding masters of German art. At once, he blamed the jury's decision to exclude his work upon this Jew, declaring, they shall pay for this. Precipitated from vainglory, Hitler woke to find himself an obscure outcast. In his despair, he stooped so low in his own estimation as to take up work as an unskilled laborer. To carry mortar on scaffolding was far beneath his dignity. He had not yet conceived the idea that Providence had chosen him to be the leader of the master race, the history of World War II. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Breaking news on uh, more Republican terrorist activity. Again, I don't know why this is not called that in the media, but uh, Raw Story is reporting. New, newly released evidence reveals a plot by a pair of Donald Trump supporters to blow up a variety of targets in California to avenge Trump's election loss. In Rogers, a successful Napa Valley mechanic shop owner, and Jared Copeland, a salesman who used to work for him, spent the final months of 2020 discussing what targets to attack to avenge Trump's loss. 
And investigators say they intended to put their plan into action after the January 6th insurrection, according to reporting from KQED-TV. They were going to target the California governor's mansion, the Democratic Party's headquarters in Sacramento, and the offices of social media companies Facebook and Twitter. Uh, one of them, Ian Rogers, said, I think right now we attack Democrats, their offices, etc., Molotov cocktails and gasoline. And then this is where it gets, you know, kind of, okay, this is how we talk about white terrorists. Business associates and friends describe the 47-year-old Rogers as a loving and responsible father and husband. But witnesses told KQED he also showed a fascination with Nazism and used racial slurs. Yes. Terrorism. Okay, picking up your phone calls here. Uh, Rudy in Atlanta, Georgia. Hey, Rudy, what's on your mind today? Tom, I know you're reserved. I know you try to um, say things and be as reserved and calculating and measured. And you usually are, but I don't think that we're at a time now, especially for those of us that have platforms to reach people, people of like minds. And Tom, we're at a time now where what that guy did, no one is safe, especially white people. Yep. So I'm in and around the South, and I see the look of people. No one is safe, Tom, what that guy did. Yeah. Well, that was the whole and, point. And, and, he was and, a terrorist. And, and those are, right. And those of us that have platforms, those of us that can communicate... Those of us that can reach people, we have to start saying something, Tom. Yeah, I agree. People need to hear you, Tom. Okay, Rudy, I got to move along, but thank you. Thanks for your kind words, and and, uh, yeah, I'm with you. Earl in Hyde Park, Illinois. Hey, Earl, what's on your mind today? Hey, good morning, Tom. What's on my mind today is uh, Buffalo, well, in New York, shooting in New York, and the uh, 10 people that were killed, and there's four or five people are still in the hospital. Yeah. We have a situation here that I believe that starts in the home and it's uh also a societal uh a systematic thing that uh that is uh sort of like the air that we breathe sometimes it starts in the home i'll give you a quick example i have a uh godchild who's of mixed racial background and she went to a predominantly uh, white church and she was in kindergarten at the church and one of her girlfriends came up to her when they were babies and said, I can't play with you anymore because you're black. Now, she didn't look black, but they knew that she had a black uh, father. And so that, that was a uh, situation wow. with that, where I say that was, uh, you know, it started in the home. Mm-hmm. And the, now the situation that I also want to refer to out here in the, in the larger community is the systematic one, like when black folks were trying to uh, integrate here in Chicago, uh, our unions and stuff, the unions had a hierarchy, and black folks were, if they were lib- uh, in, uh, integrated into the uh, union, they were limited. And for the most part, back in the day when I was trying to get into the unions, they weren't even accepting blacks, except for the black unions yeah. for, for non-trade qualifications. So basically all I'm trying to say is that we got to figure out how to tear down the institutional racism, right. and got to find people like you who can speak to white people and not necessarily turn them off. Need to try to reach them where they don't turn their children 
and to adults who are prejudiced too. Yeah, All right, so I, that's I'm with you. That's, in fact, we'll be discussing that with Ben Jealous in about 20 minutes. And I agree. I, in my mind, I don't see a solution other than exposure and integration, where white people are being exposed to non-white people in much larger numbers now on television, in the media, in movies, you know, right across the board than they were, you know, when, when you and I were kids, Earl. Um, when the only black faces on TV were either villains or buffoons. I mean, things have changed a lot, so that's helping some. But I really think that white and black people, and, and obviously, you know, this goes beyond just white and black, but that, that's where the racial extremes are happening. Um, but, you know, white and black people working together, living in the same neighborhood, shopping in the same stores, those are the things, I think, that normalize the experience of our all being together and all having common interests, concerns, and a common humanity. And I think that the, uh, my personal, and this is just my personal opinion, that, that the, even the self-segregation that has happened over the last 30 or 40 years has been uh, inhibiting that or retarding that or slowing that process, maybe even reversing it in some ways. And I, I don't, you know, we tried forced busing in the 70s, and, and you know, I remember that experiment. It didn't, it didn't work out well, largely because of the massive white backlash and, and it started the whole thing of charter schools and private all-white academies and everything else. I mean, that, that's, that's where it all began, and in a big way. I mean, you know, it, obviously it began after the Brown v. Board decision in the 50s, but it really picked up steam in the 70s a after that. So I don't know how to do it. I, you know, I don't think that we can just say, okay, you have to live in this community because, you know, they need a, uh, you know, a mixture of race uh, or something. I mean, well, you, you can't do that. You can't do that kind of social engineering. Um, so I don't know how we bring this about, Earl, and, and you know, I'm looking forward to talking to Ben Jealous about this, too, but, but we do need to have these conversations, and I think we need to keep, keep doing the work. No, Earl. I agree with you, but then one, one thing I will add to the conversation is, unfortunately, I don't believe that it's going to change as long as we have people out there who are willing to preach against uh, integration, uh, uh, denigrate uh, people of color, uh, denigrate people of different backgrounds. As long as there's a, a yin and yang going on, that we're never going to get re, uh, rid of it here in America because the, uh, white people have the power structure. You have the money, you have the, the control. And so uh, unless we change white people's uh, consciousness, I don't see how we get rid of it. Um, All right. Uh, thank you, Tom. I, yeah, thank you, Earl. I, I think you're absolutely right. I think that that is changing. I'm seeing, you know, boardrooms starting to become more colorful, shall we say but we have a hell of a long way to go. Welcome back. We uh, talked about this briefly. It was a large topic, the Buffalo shooting. Actually, I think we need to call this what it is. The Buffalo terrorist incident should make the Republican Party change its great replacement theory rhetoric. Will they? What's going on here? How do we bring about some sort of reconciliation in America? Or is it not even possible? Ben Jealous is on the line with us. He's the president of People for the American Way, a professor of the practice at the University of Pennsylvania, former national president of the NAACP, New York Times bestselling author. His next book, Never Forget Our People Were Always Free, will be published by HarperCollins in the winter, in December of this year. President Jealous, <laughs> welcome back yeah. to the program. Anytime. Good to have you with us. You published an op-ed in the USA Today titled, The Buffalo Shooting Should Make the GOP Change Its Great Replacement Theory Rhetoric. In your mind, or in what you've been tracking and observing, how did this and when did this become part of the Republican Party's 
doctrine, for lack of a better word. I mean, it seems to me like you could easily track this back to Nixon's Southern strategy, but maybe the replacement theory part of it is more recent. I'm not a, a student of this. Yeah, so look, this really starts out in the 19th century with the old Democratic Party, which, of course, was the far-right-wing conservative party of the post-Civil War era. Right, the Dixie Party. Yeah, and the Chinese Exclusion Act. Mm-hmm. If you go back... In the 18, uh, 1876, that was, wasn't it, as I recall? Yeah. 1880? Yeah. yeah, it was in the early to mid-1870s, as yeah. I recall. And there was a fear of a, quote, rising yellow tide, rising Mongol tide. And so Democratic senators made the argument that because of the native birth provision on the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, that the white man would have no place left for a home in California if we did not stop Chinese immigration to the United States. And it was hysteria in the wake of the 14th Amendment and the native birth provision, which, of course, had always been the tradition of this country. Mm-hmm. Come to America, you, we think of you as an American the day that you got on the boat, right? the day you got on the plane, and you have a child here, your child is born an American. My family, you know, we go back on, on one side to the founders of Salem Colony and on the other side to Thomas Jefferson's grandma. And, you know, either way, the idea was if you were born here, you were an American. They put that in the Constitution. And the racists went crazy attacking Chinese immigrants. That Frederick Douglass gave a speech called Our Composite Nationality. I recommend to anyone. It's a brilliant speech of what it means to be an American and why we should ultimately be optimistic about our country. And he really decimates the argument of the racists at the time. This notion, as he put it, that the Caucasian race is too fragile to you know, withstand it immigration from China and other countries. It's it's like laughable. It was very clear that actually we as a nation, we need to embrace a big notion, us as a strong nation that attracts people to us and that they come here seeking to be like us, not to make us like them. Right. Uh, which, of course, you know, that's why people immigrate. Like, you know, friend moves to France, they want to be more French. If they move to America, they want to be more American. So what do we have to fear? And Frederick Douglass would say, nothing. The reality is that that xenophobic fear of immigrants of color has always been intertwined with the fear of blacks. And the Great Replacement Theory has spawned massacres at Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, in El Paso, primarily Latinos, in New Zealand, primarily Muslims, in Buffalo, New York, primarily black folks, and and why? Because their theory, and you heard this echoed, in those nuts who were carrying torches down at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, and they were chanting, the Jews shall not replace us, the Jews shall not replace us. And I can remember thinking at the time, Tom, like, what are they talking about? Like, Jews are 2% of the population. Why are these white boys afraid of Jews replacing them? Like, what are they talking about? Well, the, the great, they were afraid of the Great Replacement Theory, and the Great Replacement Theory says, essentially, it's very dark, that the white race is endangered if Jews and people of color get together and that the Jews have a theory, kind of master plan, to replace whites with blacks who they're encouraging to have more babies, and immigrants of color that they're encouraging to come here from other countries. It's dark, it's twisted. It's also interpenetrated the anti-abortion movement, by the way, Ben. Yeah, well, it's the same folks, ultimately. And it's not just racist, it's not just anti-Semitic, it's not just xenophobic, it's all of those things. And it reminds all of us. You know, we all have a vested interest in defeating this far right wing movement. Now, who's most responsible for pushing it? Tucker Carlson and Rupert Murdoch. 
Rupert Murdoch has decided that Tucker Carlson increases ratings for the network overall, so he lets the show lose money because virtually nobody will advertise on Tucker Carlson's show because he's so blatantly racist. That has given him freedom to just be as racist as he wants to be. Tucker Carlson has pushed the Great Replacement Theory at least 400 times, according to a New York Times investigation on 400 different shows. And so, you know, if you think about it, the guy does about 200 shows a year. So he's basically talking about it several times a week, every week. That's who's pushing this. And he's the highest rated show on Fox. I think he's the highest rated news show on television. Yeah. And he's decided that pushing this sort of anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, racism, and xenophobia is what's going to get him ratings. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep, the application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs, just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. We're talking with Ben Jealous, president of the people for the American way. You and I and others across America for a long, long time have talked about the wonder of America being the first country that was created based on an idea rather than on either genetics or soil or geography. You know, Hitler's old blood and soil thing. And yet the foundation of replacement theory is that some people are actual Americans, real Americans, and some people aren't, and they're not entitled to be Americans by virtue of the color of their skin, which directly contradicts the theory of America. The problem is that the theory of America was not acted out in America. You know, it wasn't until the 1960s that we really started even getting close to applying that theory of America across the board to both politics and business and economics and, and everything else. How do we most effectively push back against this widespread belief in the white community that Anglo-Saxonism and British common law and white skin and American values are all the same thing and interpenetrate each other and that anything that is not white or Christian is not foundationally American? How do we fix that? Yeah, part of it is that we just remember our history. When I was president of the NAACP, we had a donor, a prominent Italian-American businessman, older man. And I said to him, I said, why are you so, you know, such a big supporter of the NAACP? He looked at me and said, because, son, I'm Sicilian and I'm old enough to remember when my people were lynched in America, too. Right. And the reality is, is that, you know, yes, blacks are the most frequently lynched, but Jews were lynched. Italians were lynched. Irish. Irish were lynched. Fear of Catholics, fear of people from Southern Europe. Mm-hmm. If you go back and you look in the New York Times in the early 1920s during Prohibition, they talked about Jews and Italians and Southern European immigrants the way that they talk about Latinos and blacks now as being, you know, prone to criminality and, you know, da-da-da-da-da. Right. And the Irish, you know, were always kind of like right there with blacks as far as being derided. You know, the, the only group other than Africans is that the British press routinely portrayed as monkeys. And so, you know, what we've seen is like, you know, there has been sort of a a broadening of the notion of whiteness, but what is right behind it is a centuries-old loathing of most groups in this country. And and so it's really, and that's, I think, the 
if there is a moment with this great replacement theory, it's a moment for all of us to reflect and say, wait a second. You know, I mean, this is, this is, this is like the old, uh, oh, the old reflection by the theologian, you know, about the Holocaust, right? First they came for, then oh, they came Niemoller, for, then they yeah. came for. Yes. Yeah, you know, the, it's like first there was the massacre at Tree of Life Synagogue. Then there was the massacre of Muslims in New Zealand. Then there was the massacre of Latinos in Texas. Then there was the massacre of blacks in New York. And why? Because the far right wing is pushing this great replacement theory and telling um, um, America that there is a great Jewish-led conspiracy to replace white people in this country, to take it away from them, uh, you know, with blacks, encouraging blacks to have babies and immigrants of color to come here. And, it's, and yet, you know, again, you can go back to, to the 19th century. This is what Frederick Douglass was fighting right after he, right. you know, uh, helped win the battle over So you think, uh, forgive the interruption, we're, I, I, we've got about 40 seconds left. You think um, that we can kind of educate our way out of this? Look, we got to really sit down. I mean, ultimately, Fox News, the Republican Party, needs to disavow this theory. We also need to really look back at the old equal time requirement. Part of this is about media deregulation, which was specifically done at the behest of Rupert Murdoch. And ultimately, now we see what his endgame was, which was to be able to, to push for high ratings with hate. These are the public's airways. Which he fine-tuned in Australia, by the way. Yeah, well, you know, and we've got to take a look and say, is it really worth it to let Rupert Murdoch make profits uh, by tearing our country apart? Yeah, I'm with you. Ben Jealous, president of People for the American Way, his, uh, his next book will be Never Forget Our People Were Always Free. I'm, I'm assuming, Ben, it's available for pre-order on Amazon and other places? It is. Great. It okay, is. check it out. Ben Jealous, thanks so much for dropping by, Ben. All right, thank you, Brent. Great talking with you. And welcome to the Tom Hartman Book Club, Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from Tears We Cannot Stop, A Sermon to White America by Michael Eric Dyson, who was a guest on our program a while back. Uh, this is from page 86. One of the great privileges of whiteness is not to see color, not to see race, and not to pay a price for ignoring it, except, of course, when you're called on it. But even then, the price pales quite literally in comparison to the high price black folk pay for being black. We pay a price too, for not even being able to derive recognition and financial reward for the styles that make the world want to be black so bad that they don't mind looking like us as long as they never ever have to be us. If the appropriators can freely rip off our culture with no consequences, those who revise racial history, the fourth stage of white racial grief, are even less accountable for their deeds. The way of the racial revisionist when it comes to black life and history is simply to rewrite it. Their motto is, it didn't happen that way. There's a flood of writing that tells us that the Civil War wasn't really about slavery, but about an effort to defend states' rights. But, my friend, you've got to put yourself in our place and see the absurdity of such a claim. Defend the rights of states to do what? To enslave blacks. But even here, the irresistible logic of whiteness that is irresistible to whites themselves and to all of us who are subjected to white whim springs into full action. White American history is so powerful that even when it loses, it wins, at least in skirmishes within whiteness itself. From the right wing, there is the belief that the Civil War was fought over the ability of individual states to beat back a federal government out to impose its will. 
From the left wing, there's the belief that the Civil War was a conflict between the planter class and the proletariat. In each case, race as the main reason for the war is skillfully rewritten, or really written out. Slavery is rewritten, too. Some white Christian apologists contend that black folk needed slavery to save their souls or to rescue their cultures. A contemporary twist on this argument radiates in thinkers like Dinesh D'Souza, who claims that American blacks brought here through slavery are now doing far better than their African kin. Some white critics argue that since blacks sold other blacks into slavery, bondage was a black man's problem, not a white man's burden. But revisionists would much rather describe the dehumanization of black folk as little more than a commercial transaction. It's another way of washing their hands of racial responsibility. The effort to rewrite history surfaces in how Malcolm X is treated in the mainstream. It hardly seems likely that the culture he fought with all his heart could be depended on to grasp his true meaning. Malcolm is often read as an apostle of violence, as a frightful figure, consumed by destructive rage. But the truth is far more complex, and Malcolm was far more complicated. But isn't the autobiography of Malcolm X so enduringly appealing because it shows Malcolm giving up hatred as a means to racial justice? Now, Malcolm X believed in the liberation of black folk from the mental and psychological chains of white supremacy. He was not committed to nonviolence as a way of life or as a method of social strategy. He believed that such a commitment prevents the full realization of black emancipation. Yet he was not personally violent. As Ossie Davis says in his eulogy, responding to the claim that Malcolm preached hate and was a fanatic and a racist, quote, Did you even talk to Brother Malcolm? Was he ever himself associated with violence or any public disturbance? End quote. The rage that flowed in Malcolm's veins was the rage against a force of whiteness that aimed to wash its black kin from the face of the earth. The urge to rewrite black history occasionally gives way to the final stage of white racial grief, which is simply, when it comes to race, dilute it. That is, to argue that black stuff doesn't just plague black folk. To summarize, bad stuff happens to everyone. This argument surfaced in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, and that storm certainly hit black folk, but it hit white folk too. This is the sordid version of reverse American exceptionalism. It is the same Me Too impulse that flares in the bitter battle against affirmative action. Beloved, I can't help but notice that affirmative action is the bee in so many of your bonnets. You look around in your classrooms and you think every black person is there because they got an unfair shake from the system. You look at your job and you think that your black coworker got an unjust nod of approval from the powers that be. You never stop to think how the history of whiteness in America is one long scroll of affirmative action. You never stop to think that Babe Ruth never had to play the greatest players of his generation, just the greatest white players. You never stop to think that most of our presidents never rose to the top because they bested the competition, only just the white competition. White privilege is a self-selecting tool that keeps you from having to compete with the best. The history of white folk gaining access to Harvard, Princeton, or Yale is the history of white folk deciding ahead of the game that you are superior. You argue that slots in school should be reserved for your kin because, after all, they are smarter, more disciplined, better suited, and more deserving than inferior blacks. From Tears We Cannot Stop, A Sermon to White America by Michael Eric Dyson. Orlando in Stockton, California. Hey, Orlando, what's on your mind? 
Hey, Tom. I really enjoy your show and appreciate what you do. I just wanted to talk about how, you know, I grew up in Missouri, and I can remember going to school in Kirksville, Missouri, at uh, the Truman State. And I had people in my family who were concerned about me traveling to Missouri to go to school in Kirksville because at that time, if you remember, there was this insurgence or growth of these paramilitary groups in Missouri. And I can remember when Branson became kind of almost like a rallying cry, like a, almost a capital for them in Missouri where they would meet. And you'd have all these kind of like conservative ideologues coming to Branson, Missouri to enjoy themselves as well as you had this kind of like fear growing in Missouri of these paramilitary groups, just kind of speaking to what you were talking about earlier, how this has been a growing concern in this country for a long time. And a lot of times it seems like you've had police with these same ideas that have been embedded within the police. And it seems like you don't really get much traction on this, on addressing these issues and, and eliminating these ideologies in this country, because it seems like it's grown to be so interwoven in the fabric of the conservative ideas and various departments in our country. The idea of what, white supremacy you're talking about? The idea of white supremacy, you know, and how it has grown and how it's inundated within various police departments about the, oh, yeah. uh, throughout the country. And I've, I've heard you speak about this, and yeah. even the FBI director, you know, has shown a great deal of concern about these ideas that are permeating within the police department. And a lot of this stuff started with, in the 80s, with a lot of these paramilitary groups and a lot of these individuals, they joined police forces, they joined military, they joined all types of, you know, executive branch areas of force. And that's, I believe that's what we're dealing with today. It is the kind of like the result of not paying attention to what was happening almost 40 years ago. I agree. I agree. And you're absolutely right. There has been a concerted effort by white supremacists to essentially infiltrate military and police agencies. Number one, to spread the gospel. Number two, to get training on how to kill people. Number three, to simply, you know, get a good job and use the, the power of the state to be able to, to beat up or even kill black people. I mean, you know, it's all of the above. So, yeah, spot on, Orlando. Thank you. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.